The 16th century Anglican priest William Law once said, if you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you have chosen instead. Yeah, it's really not that difficult to find people today, particularly in this country, especially in this part of the country, who say they believe in God. In fact, it's, it's actually quite common for people around our neck of the woods to profess some kind of faith or belief in God, and I mean in the Christian God, in Jesus Christ. What is more difficult to find, however, are people who actually have God at the center of their lives because we live in a culture that offers us so many other attractions that we can focus on instead of Jesus Christ. And of course, we don't necessarily think of things like money or career or sex or family or addictions or hobbies or material things as gods or idols, uh, certainly not like those that were worshipped in Canaan uh, or Greece or Rome, other places all throughout biblical scripture. But look, anything that takes the place of Jesus Christ in your life is ultimately what you end up worshipping. Whatever dominates your time and attention and affection and focus and passion and desire more than anything else, that's what ends up ruling your life. And we are, every single one of us, ruled by something. We are. We all bow to something in our lives, whether we're willing to admit that or not. We all have something that drives us, that motivates us, inspires us, captivates us, and most of all, that demands our focus above everything else. Whatever that is, whatever is truly at the center of your life, if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, then you've elevated that person or that thing to a place in your life that was meant for God alone. Okay, uh, look, there's a throne at the center of every single person's life. And whoever or whatever occupies that throne is what rules you. And so one of the most effective lies ever perpetrated against God's people throughout history has been this idea that as long as we believe in God, that means he is our God. Scripture is very clear that you can believe in God without him actually being your God. One of the most well-known examples in the Bible is James, of course, the brother of Jesus, who said, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James 2.19, and actually James was pointing back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, which was a Jewish creed about the importance of monotheism, the belief that there's only one God as opposed to the Canaanites who were polytheistic, meaning they believed in many gods. The point being, James was saying, listen, you can have an intellectual assent about the Christian faith. You can believe that there's only one God and, and even believe that that God is Jesus Christ, which of course is good. But you understand, the demons believe that too. So obviously believing that Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ actually being your God are two altogether different realities. And so there are other religions that accept Jesus Christ as a God, for instance, one of many, and so they worship him alongside of many others. Yet there are also people right here at home who profess to be monotheistic Christians, people who believe there's only one God and believe that that God is Jesus Christ, and yet at the same time, they're okay with allowing other things to rule their lives because they've been led to believe, in many cases in the church, that as long as you accept that Jesus Christ is God, that necessarily then means he is your God. 
Well, in fact, Scripture points out from one end of this book to the other that believing God is who he says he is and him actually being your God are two very different things. And it all comes down to who or what is at the center of your life. Because yes, of course, there, there has to be, uh, yes, there has to be a mental assent, an understanding, certainly, and a conviction. There has to be a belief that Jesus Christ is the one true God. But him actually being your God also means that your very life belongs to him. And so in repentance and in faith, you worship and follow him to the exclusion of worshiping and following all those other things that so many people worship and follow. And of course, it doesn't mean we don't have some of those other things in our lives at all necessarily. It just means those things are not at the center of your life because that place is reserved for Jesus Christ alone. And honestly, uh, I think this is the far greater challenge facing the church today than there simply being a lack of professing believers in our modern culture. The much larger problem for the church is the sheer volume of people in our churches who profess to believe in Jesus Christ but refuse to allow him to occupy the throne that is at the center of their lives. So they believe in Jesus, but they bow to something else. And I say that in part because over the last about 30 years in ministry, I've known and tried to work with many professing believers who have entered into adulterous relationships or who refuse to contribute their time and their money and their talents and their gifts to the church or who chase after material possessions while ignoring the needs of others around them or who pursue their careers at the expense of their families. And yet I've never heard one of these professing believers when I ask them about their faith in Christ, I've never had even one of them ever say to me, the reason I don't give to the church or the reason I'm pursuing this adulterous relationship or this material addiction or this career move is because I don't believe in Jesus anymore. No. In every single case, they continued to profess faith in Christ while openly and consciously choosing to pursue paths in life which are undeniably not the will of God. And that's just it, you see. People generally don't reject their belief in Christ even when they're not following Christ. Which again, it's important, we're, we're saved by grace. You understand, through faith alone, absolutely. So even though we all sin, we all fall short of God's best, that doesn't mean we should stop believing in him, obviously. The issue we're confronting today is accepting the lie that as long as we just believe in Jesus, then we can ignore him and expect our relationship with him to be unaffected. Yet the apostle Peter said, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life. And he's talking to Christians here. So that your prayers may not be hindered. First Peter 3, 7. That's an interesting thing to say to Christians, isn't it? That your prayers could be hindered. James said, you ask and do not receive. He's talking to the church. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James 4.3, clearly our communication with God is directly affected by the focus of our desires. I know that from firsthand experience in my own life, okay? If you believe in Jesus while serving something else, you're missing what God intended for your life, which isn't a new phenomenon, by the way. That's actually been going on throughout human history, as we'll see. Nothing less was at stake uh, for God's people all the way back in the days of Joshua, which he recognized Joshua could see the same human nature in God's people then that we find in God's people today. I say it all the time. Human culture constantly changes. Human nature never changes. 
That's why these words, these ancient words apply to us today the same as they did people then because human culture is constantly changing. Human nature never changes. It's the same. The human condition is the same throughout the ages. And so in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua, we find Joshua at the end of his life warning God's people about the dangers of chasing after other gods while trying to include in the mix the God of Israel as a part of their lives. And so he gives them some very clear instructions of how to make sure that Yahweh, the one true God, stays at the center of their lives. Because when we begin to treat God as a part of our life, instead of the very center of our life, well, bad things happen. We, we miss out on many of the things that could have been, things we could have been and done and experienced had we simply kept God at the center. So let's pick the story up where we left off last week. Uh, last time anyway, it wasn't last week, and we'll see what we can learn from Joshua that, that may help us understand what it truly means to have God at the center of your life, okay? We'll start at Joshua chapter 23 and read the first three verses. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders, its heads, its judges, and officers, and said to them, I'm now old and well advanced in years. and You've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. So the chapter starts out with a long time afterward when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, which is to say a long time after the Israelites completed their conquest against the Canaanites. In total, this was probably about 25 years or so, we don't know exactly, uh, after the fighting in Canaan had ended, assuming that Joshua and Caleb were about the same age. We know from Joshua 14:7 that Caleb was 40 years old when Moses sent him and Joshua to spy out the land. And according to Deuteronomy 2:14, from that time until they entered Canaan was another 38 years, which means Caleb was 78 years old at the beginning of the conquest of Canaan. We know from Joshua 24 that Joshua was 110 years old when he died shortly after this meeting here in chapter 23. So again, if, if Joshua was about the same age as Caleb, and you subtract 78 from 110, then this chapter happened about 32 years after they first entered Canaan. There's going to be a quiz on this later, so you remember. Uh, and then if you subtract the seven years they spent at war with the Canaanites from the 32 years that they've been in Canaan in total, that means Israel has been at rest from war about 25 years as this chapter opens up, which happens to be the fulfillment of a promise made to them by God in several places in Deuteronomy, including chapters 3, verse 20, chapter 12, verse 10, again in uh, chapter 25, verse 19, that they would have rest in the land of promise. And knowing that, of course, Joshua, nearing the end of his time on earth, calls for the leaders of Israel. These were men who had fought with him, who had bled with him, who had suffered loss with him, who had faithfully followed him into many great victories. And because of it, they've now spent the last quarter of a century enjoying the land and peace and prosperity without fear of anyone coming against them. So you'd better believe when Joshua called for them, they were eager to sit with their leader one last time to hear what he had to say. And so he begins by reminding them of everything God had done for them of all the promises he had fulfilled already in their lives. And in the last chapter, we talked about the importance of doing that very thing for each other often. Remember, because remembering what God has done for us encourages us. It, it builds our faith, and it strengthens our resolve to continue serving God no matter what comes our way. And so Joshua does just that. 
He reminds them of all that God had already done for them, at least in part, in preparation for what was coming next. Let's keep reading then, verses four and five. Behold, I've allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. So just as the first three verses are Joshua reminding the leaders of Israel of all that God has already done for them, these next two verses are Joshua reminding them of all that God is going to do for them in the future. He's reminding them of the promises of God in their lives that have yet to be fulfilled, okay? God promised his people an inheritance from the River Jordan all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, but Israel has yet to fully occupy that entire territory. So Joshua is making sure they understand that first of all, it is God alone who makes the promise and gives the victory. And yet, as we'll see in a moment, the responsibility for possessing that promise and laying claim to that victory rests squarely on the willingness of his people to keep them, to keep him, God, at the center of their lives. You see, there was a, there was a clause attached to the promise. You know, none of this is new revelation, by the way. This is simply Joshua reiterating to them exactly what was, uh, God's word had always said about their lives and their future. I find it very interesting that Joshua's greatest concern as an old man at the end of his life was the very same concern he had as a young man earlier in his life when he was sent by Moses to spy out the land. Joshua wanted God's people to take possession of everything that God had promised them. And it was still so important to Joshua that God's people understood exactly what it was going to take in order for them to uh, completely uh, receive the promise, fulfilled the, to see it fulfilled in their lives. And so he crafts an entire sermon around it just before he dies, which is what he's presenting them now through the rest of this chapter, as we'll see. So let's keep reading verses six and seven. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. Right, so after reminding them of the promise of God, Joshua immediately says, therefore. In other words, now that I've told you what God is going to do, here's what you have to do. Joshua says you can't mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. The Canaanites okay, were known for their fertility worship and rituals which were powerfully attractive to the Israelites. So Joshua says, in order to keep yourselves from bowing to these other gods, you'll have to be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. In other words, keep the word of God in the center of your life don't turn away from it to the right or to the left. Keep it in the center. Stay focused on God's word. Joshua's reminding the Israelites of something they've been told many times before. Keeping God at the center of your life means keeping his word. And as we'll see later in the book of uh, Judges and beyond, there is zero chance that Israel keeps God at the center of their lives when they fail to keep his word. There's zero chance that his promises get fulfilled in their lives the way they could have when they fail to keep his word. 
So please hear me. Church of America in 2024, there is zero chance of you keeping God at the center of your life if you fail to keep his word at the center of your life. And there's zero chance of you seeing his promises fulfilled in your life the way they could be if you fail to keep his word. I just heard a pastor say the other day, don't say God is silent when your Bible is closed. You see, because this book, these holy scriptures, were exhaled by the Holy Spirit. The very same Spirit who hovered over the face of the waters when the earth was created in Genesis 1. The very same Spirit who enabled Joseph to interpret the dreams of the king in Egypt in Genesis 41 and then gave him the wisdom that saved an entire nation from a great famine in Genesis 47. The very same spirit who filled Samson with the power to kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey in Judges 15. The very same spirit who filled Saul with the power to kill his enemies with the yoke of an ox in 1 Samuel 11. The very same spirit who gave Daniel the wisdom to interpret the dreams of the king of Babylon in Daniel 2. The very same spirit who descended upon Jesus himself at his baptism in Luke 3. The very same spirit who descended upon those early disciples in the upper room, anointing them to carry out the great commission in Acts 2. That very same spirit has breathed out his word for you and for me. And yet when we're too distracted by other things to simply open it up and read it, listen, we may be allowing other things to occupy that throne at the center of our lives. You understand, we have every bit of wisdom available to us today by the very same spirit that was available to Joseph and to Daniel. We have every bit of power available to us by the very same spirit that was available to Samson and Saul. We have every bit of anointing available to us by the very same spirit that was available to Jesus Christ and those original disciples. And so he gave us his words to guide us into all that right here in front of us. He says here, Take this, this is my free gift to you. Keep it at the center of your life. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left. Keep it in focus. Keep it at the center of your life. And yet so many professing believers, we allow other things to occupy that place at the center of our lives. And this this is the warning from Joshua to the Israelites. And so Joshua says to keep that from happening, to keep God at the center of your life, you're going to have to keep his word which by the way isn't complicated at all, but it also isn't always easy, which is why Joshua's bringing it up in the first place, because the Israelites have been sitting pretty for the last 25 years, peace, comfort, security, prosperity. It's, it's wonderful, come on Joshua, why rock the boat? Why stir up the waters now? We're all good here, but Joshua says no, where you are right now in your life, As good as it is, it isn't all that there is for you because God created you for more. So get off the couch and get out of your comfort zone. Let go of your security and relative life of ease and get on with the work he's created you for and called you to. By the way, there's zero chance of you doing that successfully if you do not keep his word along the way. Okay, the the truth is I'm grateful beyond words that we live in the country that we live in. I love this country and what it provides me. The problem is, if I'm being honest, sometimes I love this country and what it provides me more than I love God and what he's promised me. Why do we do that? It's because we like where we are. 
We like our comfort and security and prosperity and relative ease that so often comes along with living in a place like this. And look, there's nothing inherently wrong at all with being blessed with nice things. The, the, the fact is we can, we can love those nice things so much that we allow them to become the focal point of our lives, the center of our lives, and then we neglect his word because listen, I think deep down, I think deep down we know that sometimes his word requires us to step away from comfort and security and prosperity and ease and do the hard work of the gospel, which is exactly what Joshua was warning God's people about. It's good to be blessed, but don't allow yourself to become so enamored with those blessings in your life that you neglect God's word to the point that other things begin to rule your life instead of keeping God at the center. I mean, they were following ultimately after pagan gods, but it didn't start there. They didn't wake up one morning and say, I want to worship a pagan deity. No, it was all of the things that went along with it. Temple prostitution, all of the things that were enticing to them that lured them into where they ended up. So uh, sometimes keeping God's word is going to mean giving up other things to make room for God in the center of your life. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 10. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you've done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. So Joshua reiterates the fact that every good thing they're experiencing now is only because of what God has done for them. In fact, if you read verse 10 uh, in the ancient Hebrew, he's repeating the exact same phrase from verse 3, verbatim. The fact that it it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And that wasn't uh, because the conquest of Canaan was a pushover either. Joshua says the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. However, he also says the job isn't quite finished yet because God has more for you. So don't forget, it was God alone who got you this far, and it is God alone who will take you the rest of the way. And so if you truly want to go the rest of the way, that means you'll have to cling to him. Because keeping God at the center of your life means clinging to him. By the way, when Joshua uses that phrase, cling to the Lord your God, he's not painting a picture of someone uh, you know, hanging on to the corner of a robe or a garment for dear life. Now the word cling in that phrase is actually, it's a really theologically rich term and one that the Jewish people would have understood well. It's the ancient Hebrew word dabak and it's used all throughout scripture to describe different kinds of uh, nearly inseparable bonds between people and between different kinds of objects. Actually in Genesis 2.24 it refers to a permanent bond, the covenant relationship between a man and his wife. And actually the ancient Hebrew uh, root word for that word cling in this verse refers to the process of uh, soldering or welding two pieces of metal together uh, by a blacksmith. That, that permanent inseparable bond that is created when a blacksmith or metal worker welds metal to metal. And interestingly, even in the modern Hebrew language, the same root word is the basis today for their word for glue. So you get the idea. When Joshua says, cling to the Lord your God, he wasn't just saying, hey, grab onto God and hold on for dear life. No, not at all. He was saying permanently attach yourself, bind yourself, weld yourself permanently to God. Otherwise, you'll easily fall away from him to the left or to the right. And so to stay with him, to keep him at the center of your life, you'll need to be permanently bound to him in a covenant relationship. By the way, this description um, of us clinging to God by Joshua 
is the polar opposite of what we refer to today as cultural Christianity or nominal believers, where people who wear the label Christian, they consider themselves to be Christians, but their affiliation with Christianity has far more to do with religious tradition or social status than it does with having an actual relationship with Jesus Christ, right, who made that covenant relationship possible. Although they may claim to have faith in Jesus, there's little to no real evidence in their lives that they're actually following Jesus, which is the equivalent of what Joshua was trying to prevent among the Israelites because there were still Canaanites living among them whose culture, particularly their religious culture, was very attractive to the Jews, okay? The Canaanites worshiped pagan gods and goddesses of fertility. Temple prostitution was rampant. In fact, in addition to the biblical descriptions of uh, Canaanite culture throughout Old Testament scripture, we have many different outside sources, including uh, Punic inscriptions from Carthage and ancient Egyptian depictions and Phoenician inscriptions from Turkey as well. They all describe many different forms of idolatry, adultery, bestiality, incest, homosexuality, even child sacrifice among the Canaanites. And so when the Israelites did fall away from God, right, again, it wasn't like they woke up one day and decided to become pagans because they were attracted to some pagan god. It wasn't the idea of following a, a demonic deity that attracted them. No, it was a slide, a gradual slide into Canaanite culture that led to their downfall as they slowly integrated that culture, more specifically that sin, along with following those deities that came along with them. They integrated that sinful culture and those practices around them into their own, and it ultimately became the center of their lives and their worship. And so instead of influencing the culture around them to the glory of God, they became virtually indistinguishable, culturally speaking, from the Canaanites. They were God-fearers in name only as their lives began to mirror the pagan religious culture around them. Now look, cultural Christianity is nothing more than a modern version of that in the American church today where popular opinion and what is culturally acceptable actually has more influence on how we live our lives than the words the Holy Spirit breathed out for us to live by. Where we try to bend the teachings of scripture until they line up with our personal preferences until the culture of the church becomes virtually indistinguishable from the popular culture around us. And all of this, by the way, boils down to what is at the center of your life. Okay, our culture is all about glorifying and gratifying self. The message of this culture is to put yourself at the center of your own life. And when the culture and the teachings of the church do the very same thing, we're taking our focus off of Christ and putting it squarely back on ourselves. Right? If the primary focus of our teaching in the church becomes uh, personal uh, health and wealth and prosperity, to the exclusion of self-denial, self-sacrifice, and service to God and his people, then all we're doing is taking our focus off of Christ and we're putting it back on ourselves. When we view the church as something that primarily exists to serve us, rather than something that primarily enables us to serve others, we're taking the focus off of Christ and putting it back on ourselves. When we refuse to allow the church to have any influence or authority in our lives at all, we're taking our focus off of Christ and we're putting it back on ourselves. When we remove every aspect of the gospel message that is unpopular or difficult to hear so as not to offend anyone, we're taking our focus off of Christ and putting it back on ourselves until eventually you end up with nothing more than a weak, ineffective, impotent, feckless, and quite 
frankly useless organization that is powerless to affect any change in the culture around it that has no authority to influence the lives of the members within it and accomplishes nothing of substance that actually brings glory to the one who created it. You see, it's all about what we keep at the center of our lives, which is one of the reasons Joshua warns the Israelites in verse 12, as we'll see, not to intermarry with the Canaanites because that would be clinging to something other than God himself, right? Putting something else in the center of their lives and binding themselves to a way of life that takes their focus off of him and puts it back on themselves. And that may seem unfair to us, right? God, for him to tell them who they can or cannot marry. But listen, sometimes clinging to God means letting go of other things to make room for him at the center of our lives. Let's keep reading verses 11 through 13. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God, for it will, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So Joshua offers them a stern warning about clinging to the Canaanite culture and religion, the Canaanite people around them. He says, don't cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Just to be clear, um, when Joshua says associating with them, he's not saying don't speak to them. Don't get near them in any way. Don't tell them about your God or your way of life. Now, first of all, the word associate in verse 12 is the word bow in the Hebrew. It means to go into or to enter into. In other words, to associate with in this verse is something much deeper than what we think of today as associating with others. And of course, Joshua is using this word here in the context of marriage. And furthermore, we've already clearly seen God's desire for foreigners in Cain and sojourners to be grafted into the family of God in several places. Rahab, of course, right from the beginning of the story is a great example of that. So what Joshua is warning them against is clinging to, being bound to these people and their pagan gods and their pagan culture, intermarrying, becoming a part of their culture. But there's something else here we don't want to miss. It's the third point in our outline, and it is, in fact, the whole reason behind all of this. All these rules and instructions, right here in the very heart of Joshua's sermon, in verse 11, he says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Keeping God at the center of your life simply means loving Him more than you love anything or anyone else. It's so important, in fact, that everything in this sermon by Joshua, the commands to keep the word of God, the commands to avoid being entangled in pagan culture and pagan people instead of clinging to God, all of that is just a means to an end. Sometimes the, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament and others like Joshua, sometimes they get, a, they get a bad rap because it can seem like it's all a bunch of harsh religious rules, list of do's and don'ts, when in reality, the commands of God for his people to be faithful to him. All throughout the Old Testament, they were never, first of all, given in a sterile environment, a harshly overbearing environment. No, they were always given in service of a much larger principle, namely the fact that God wants a loving relationship with his people, which he expressly stated in Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. According to Jesus in Matthew 22.37, that's the greatest commandment of them all. 
In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the Apostle Paul says that faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The Apostle Peter said, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8, you see, love is the common thread that runs throughout God's word because his desire is to have a loving relationship with his people. And so he promised to be with his people in Joshua 1, 9, just as he promised to be with us in Matthew 28, 20. And in return, he wants our loyalty and our love. You see, all of this at the end of the day, it all simply comes down to God loving us and us loving him back, which is not just a feeling, of course. It's not just meant to be something we we believe in or include as a part of our lives. No, God wants our love to be focused on him, to be at the very center of our lives. In verse 11, when Joshua says, be very careful, therefore, to love your God, if you read that, be very careful, therefore, in the Hebrew, it, it literally reads, take care for your very souls. So the whole verse reads, take care for your very souls to love the Lord your God. In other words, love the Lord your God for the very sake of your own life. This is for you that I'm giving this command. It's for your benefit. It's for your life's sake that you love God and keep him at the center of your life. Okay, you get this, right? You understand God desires our love, but do you know he doesn't need our love? He doesn't need anything. He is complete in himself. He he isn't improved, made better by our love. God isn't dependent upon our love. He isn't lost without our love. And he isn't changed by our love. We, on the other hand, well, that's a different story altogether. We must love God for the sake of our own lives because our lives are infinitely improved by loving him. Literally, our lives are dependent upon loving him. We're lost when we do not love him, but when we choose to keep him at the very center of our lives with all of our love focused on him, everything changes in our lives for our immediate and eternal good. It's why we keep his word. It's why we cling to him, so that we're able to love him as we should and as we must for the sake of our very souls. This is the power in choosing to love God back. Blaise Pascal once observed, when God addresses our human hearts, there's always enough light for those who desire to see, yet enough obscurity for those who do not wish to see. What makes the difference is the heart. Okay, God loves us already. The key to keeping him in the center of our lives is not convincing him to love us more. No, the key is rather our response to that love, which means keeping him at the center of our lives only happens when we're very careful, as Joshua puts it, to love him back. Sometimes loving God means not being so in love with the world. Okay, the fact is, there's a throne at the center of every single one of our lives, and whoever or whatever occupies that throne, that is what rules us. And God wants that to be him. But he won't force it. Just listen to what Joshua says to the Israelites if they choose not to keep God at the center of their lives. Verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and your souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. 
But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he's commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he's given to you. Notice how the choice is left up to them. God says, you can choose to keep me at the center of your life, or you can miss out on everything that could be yours. There's so much more that I have in store for you. If you would but choose to keep my word and cling to me and love me as I've loved you, Lest we think this is merely an Old Testament teaching, Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him, John 14, 21. So what is it that is occupying the throne at the center of your life today? What influences the decisions you make from day to day? What, what shapes your life more than anything else? Is it God's word? Or is it a desire to be as comfortable and secure and prosperous as possible? Do you cling to God for acceptance and affirmation and validation and satisfaction? Or do you look for all of that from our culture around us? What does your heart desire more than anything else? Is it God? Or is it something else? Because I can tell you this. You can take every single thing that this world could ever offer you, and at its best, it cannot hold a candle to everything God is offering you. But that can only be found with God at the center of your life. Let's pray.